Welcome to Insights with Sights, the Symphony of Scripture, a weekly podcast exploring the themes and contours of the weekly scripture readings. For more information about the podcast or to download the companion notes, please visit slash podcast We now join our host, the Reverend Dr. Christopher Seitz. As we noted last week, the final Sunday in Epiphany is either the fifth Sunday of the season or the ninth, all depending on the date of Easter in the given year. And the lesson chosen for it is always the Transfiguration. This year we have the account from Mark in chapter 9. Because of the significance registered annually of the Transfiguration, preparing us for the Lenten season to follow, all the lessons have been selected in coordination with each other for this Sunday. So the roughly continuous reading from Paul we've been listening to moves away from 1 Corinthians to a brief excerpt from Paul's second letter to Corinth. The light that shines out of darkness is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, he writes. The selection has been made in order to tie the knowledge in our hearts, granted by the Holy Spirit, with Jesus Christ transfigured, who appeared before three of his disciples on a mountaintop to grant them this vision of his dazzling eternity. We are at that point in all of the Synoptic Gospels where Jesus is turning from his epiphany, earthly ministry, and heading now to Jerusalem and his passion and death. In the account provided by Luke, this is actually the topic under discussion when the transfigured Jesus is conversing with Moses and Elijah concerning his New Testament exodus. The Gospel of Mark provides three statements from Jesus to his disciples about this exodus, each with a slightly different reaction from Peter's rejection and rebuttal in chapter 8 to misunderstanding and fear in chapter 9 and finally to silent following in chapter 10. In Mark, the transfiguration story comes just after the first of these declarations. And Jesus charged that all who follow will take up a cross as he is to do ahead of and for us all. And that is, of course, our Lenten walk this year as every year and our daily walk in this life following him. So it's significant that after this difficult charge from Jesus, we are made privy as readers of Mark's gospel to the encounter three of his followers chosen by him, including the brash Peter, privately experienced on a high mountain apart, as Mark compactly puts it. Before we look more closely at this, our signal reading for the day, the Old Testament passage is important to consider since it provides 
the key information concerning the prophet Elijah, whose conversation on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Jesus is at the heart of this account. So let's go there first. Earlier in Epiphany, Deuteronomy, we heard, read, which spoke of a prophet like Moses who would arise. And though the text there appears to want to refer to the prophets who appear in the wake of Moses, prophets like Elijah and Elisha, in time, after the twilight era of prophecy, it was understandably taken to refer to a resumption of prophecy in one final appearance, prophecy in its totality, focused in Jesus Christ, incarnate. In these two mighty prophets, Elijah and Elisha, we see today a passing of the torch from one generation to the next. The references in the chapters concerning the affairs of Elijah and Elisha, fully 19 in total, point us to prophecy in a distinctive mode. We hear of bands of prophets, sons of prophets, the NRSV, a company of prophets. We hear of characteristic dress, Elijah's famous mantle, and feats of healing, rainmaking, fire from heaven, fasting, and great strength. We hear also of a father or abbot, and even possibly a tonsure. Elisha is referred to as Old Baldy or Baldhead in 2 Kings chapter 2, and not very wisely at that. One might think of powerful monastic figures like Bernard of Clairvaux founding monasteries, counseling popes, defending the faith tirelessly. Elijah's abbot ministry is coming to a close, and he knows it, as do his sons, his prophetic followers. And Elisha knows it too. Elijah tries to move out of sight to Bethel and then to Jericho and at last to the Jordan. And though he asks Elisha to stay put, Elisha declines. With his mantle, Elijah parts the Jordan as Joshua, Moses' follower, did once long ago. At last, he confronts Elisha and asks what he would have him do. And he responds he wants a double portion of his spirit. And given what, given what we've seen of it in the ministry of Elijah, we can understand his statement to Elisha that this is a hard thing to ask for. He does not so much give what Elijah asks for as provide, for the conditions under which it could happen. If he sees him going up into heaven, much in the same way, though, for the last time, he has persistently accompanied Elijah in these his last days. And the narrator shows us the prophet Elisha keeping on watching until he could see Elijah no further, and only then tearing his clothes in two as the two prophetic men, son and father, are torn in two from one another. His last words may sound curious. Father is clear enough. 
given the monastic-like fellowship they share. But what of the chariots of Israel and its horsemen? The identical phrase will be used just before Elisha himself is about to die by Joash, the king of Israel, as he cries and then accepts the farewell of this great prophetic hero. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, the king cries out. Most agree chariots and horsemen refer to the greatest in the human military arsenal, whether of Pharaoh, whose chariots and horsemen were thrown into the sea, or the Syrian commander of Elisha's day, as we read on, or the later empires of Assyria and Babylon with their chariots and horsemen, the air, sea, and land assault weapons mighty nations today wield. Elijah and Elisha are that arsenal for Israel more powerful than any human force. The prophetic chariot is now separating and a whirlwind carries Elijah bodily into heaven. Having gone into heaven, the return of Elijah remained a feature of reflection. And so he appears, mentioned in Mark's account before Moses. Moses was, of course, the preeminent Old Testament figure, and so in time, ideas related to his assumption into the heavenlies would also emerge. Whether the pairing Moses and Elijah, Elisha and Moses, suggests the law and the prophets as the totality of scriptural testimony is plausible, though not underscored here. Both Elijah and Moses, of course, had significant revelatory experiences at Sinai. The after six days, as Mark's account opens, reminds us of Moses' ascent after six days, as we read of that in Exodus 24. Though Origen, the church father, also saw this pointing to the Sabbath seventh day, which represented paradisial time and its perfection. The dazzling clothes also suggest the glorious garments traditionally held to be Adam's eternal clothing in God's unmediated presence in the Garden of Eden before garments of skin, garments of corporeality, were given to him after his disobedience. There's much to be said here. This notion of garments of glory, of dazzling brightness, imitating the later vestments of the priesthood. Mark, in his account, does not refer to a shining face, but clothes with an intensity of whiteness unlike anything humanity might make or imagine. We should take it that this signaled already the different status of Jesus 
when compared with the two heroes with which he was conversing, he alone in the dazzling garments of eternity. In the Old Testament, the eternal word enlivened and spoke to Moses and the prophets. And now that fact is disclosed for what it is in truth and was and is shown to us to be such and to the three privileged witnesses. Moses and Elijah are talking with the eternal word as he had enlivened them in their ministries. Peter did not know what to say, so he proposed a building project. He was, they were, terrified. Not a good time to be making concrete proposals. Note also the difference here, Peter and Jesus, Elisha and Elijah. Elisha wanted to go wherever Elijah went, and he refused to leave him. He didn't seek to make him stay, but he wanted the means to move forward with his spirit, indeed in double strength. A model disciple, taking up his cross and following as Jesus had asked of them. The voice from heaven says exactly what was said at the baptism of Jesus, with which our epiphany reflections began. Here, however, is added the important words, listen to him. He has told you what he will do and where he is going. This prophet mightier than Elisha will walk to his death, and he bids us follow. Listen to him. Stay close to him. No need to build anything or freeze the frame. The path to new life, to eternal life, to dazzling fellowship with God, such as Jesus himself shares, to victory over death, goes through Calvary. The three cannot know the details of the path or of the following itself, but they are given here to see before them the end point Jesus is tracking and that he will gain for us all. They can count on that. They are given to see who this Jesus is in his life with God that he has come to give us. He won't be bodily whisked into heaven. By his act of love and dying for us, he will claim for himself the bodies of Moses and Elijah of all the Old Testament saints, the halting three and the twelve, and us now in our building proposals, our fears, our rebuttals, and he will make us like unto his eternal self. Robed in his glorious body, in and by the Spirit, Paul tells us, he has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge 
of the glory of God in the dazzling face of Jesus Christ. And as our psalm summarizes it, out of Zion, in the eternal Son, perfect in beauty, God reveals himself in glory. We hope you enjoyed Insights with Sights, the symphony of Scripture. For archived episodes and notes, please visit www.wickliffcollege.ca slash podcast. Thank you, and we hope you tune in again. This podcast is a ministry of Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto.